the Canucks and the rest of the NHL. They will take an early holiday break. It is the Canucks hour here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. My name is Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Strand. You can read his work, doing fantastic work covering the team at The Athletic as well. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. And Drancer, just to peel back the curtain a little bit, and I think... You know, full transparency here is important because of some scheduling, some logistical issues uh, in our normal time slot. We are recording Tuesday's edition of Canucks Hour at about 8 o'clock p.m. on Monday night. And now that's important because we are living in a very news-heavy time around the NHL. Just to share the latest as of this recording with everyone, of course it is that on Monday night, the NHL and the PA agree that they are going to begin the holiday break after Tuesday's game. So kicking in on Wednesday, December 22nd, uh, and practices will be allowed to resume on the on December 26th. So that is a full pause of team activities around the NHL, not just for teams impacted by COVID right now, going into effect on Wednesday, December 22nd, Drancer. Yeah, speaking of taking a Christmas break early, I'm off to Ontario. <laughs> I'm in the air right now as you listen to this through the magic of pre-recorded radio. So thanks for everyone for bearing with us. And look, the NHL is hour to hour. The Canucks are hour to hour. Um, yeah. They'll be practicing as, we, uh, as you hear this. And it'll be an interesting sort of day because even the idea of Bruce Boudreaux's minicamp is kind of out the window already, right? We now know that all NHL team facilities are shutting down as of Wednesday. And so the Canucks have two more days to practice, or, or sorry, one more day to practice today. And that means that even Bruce Boudreaux's minicamp ends up truncated in just a two-day exercise. And it was interesting because when we heard from Bruce Boudreaux, Bruce Boudreaux excuse me, on Monday after the Canucks practice, he was pretty excited about the chance to get some practice time in with these teams. And he talked openly about saying, hey, this is an opportunity for us. Other teams might not be able to get on the ice, but we can right now. We've had negative tests. We have a lot of our players, not quite a full complement, of course, with some players still in COVID protocol. But Bruce Boudreau was very upfront about the opportunity it was going to be afforded to his team. And as you say, Drancer, that's out the window. You know, one more practice. It's a very, very mini camp for Bruce Boudreau here. Just a couple of days with his Vancouver Canucks. So that's the latest news as we have it again, pre-recording this episode ahead of time. But the holiday break going to come early for the NHL. League-wide, they will shut down temporarily after the games on Tuesday, December 21st. And did you hear, though, Bruce Boudreau was very careful to say, I know we're practicing tomorrow. But yes. he didn't say anything beyond that. Yep. So I do think teams have had a sense that this was coming. And, you know, I, I think there is also a sense that it could be a, a longer pause as well uh, uh, around the NHL. I think everyone's sort of expecting the unexpected at this juncture to tell people that things will go according to any interim plan that is put out. You know, that's sort of what people find shocking. It is, as you say, the sense that it could be longer. I mean, it's impossible to escape that sense, right? Or at least totally. that that concern that mm -hmm. it could be longer. It's great to say, okay, we're going to resume. We're going to get back at it on December 26th. We have no idea 
what things are going to look like in the NHL, in Canada, <laughs> across the continent right. on December 26th. Well, in, in British Columbia, as of 1.30 this afternoon, when Adrian Dix and, and Safety Minister Farnsworth, as well as Dr. Bonnie Henry, brief the populace on, on additional um, you know, restrictions or protocols that are coming into place to try and mitigate the impact of Omicron, Omicron. Yep. I've been saying Omicron because of Omega. Yeah. I don't know if that's correct, though. So anyway, the sort of the NHL marches on with very little certainty, except for except for at this point, we all know that they're not going to go to the Olympics. Yeah. It's just that that can't be official yet because it is ultimately a promise that the league made to the players. Right. And it is difficult to sort of parse through and figure out exactly how, like, there's a threshold that's been hit that allows the NHL to unilaterally say, we're not going. But I don't think anyone wants to do that on the NHL side, right? I think it it would be better, all told, for this to be a collective decision. I think the reality of the situation, in addition to the, you know, (laughs) billions owed on the player side for two, two league owners for having played on through the bubble through last season... I mean, it, it's not practical anymore. We know that at some point that's coming down. Maybe it's already come down by the time you're hearing this. Yeah. But the the like one of the only certainties that we have at this point is that NHL players playing in the Olympics doesn't seem likely. And we've even heard, I mean, that's been reported by Frank Zaravelli already, by Elliot Friedman, that basically the writing is on the wall. It's happening. That decision is coming. It's just a question of when the official announcement. And how it's shaped. And then we've even heard that, you know, they're started to look at, despite the logistical hurdles that we've talked about, right? They have started to look at, okay, how do we get some of these games that we're postponing? How do we get them made up during that Olympic break that was supposed to be on the schedule in February. So obviously that decision is coming. The logistics of it are being figured out right now. And look, it's it's a massive disappointment. I think I speak for myself, and I think I speak for a lot of hockey fans, Drancer, that we're not going to be able to see you know, the best on best at the international level that we've been so desperate for for so long as hockey fans. And I understand there are a lot of complications and very reasonable objections about these games, even apart from COVID. I completely understand that. But purely as a spectator, yeah, it is extremely disappointing that we're not going to be able to watch this tournament. It's also interesting from a Canucks perspective because, you know, you look up and down this roster, and there are a lot of players who at the very least had Olympic aspirations. And some of the players, you know, based on their pedigree, based on what they've been doing already this season, were going to be absolute locks to make their team and represent their country at these Olympics and to have that honor. Others are going to be more on the bubble. But again, this is a roster, you know, that's got a lot of players are going to be affected by this decision. And the Olympics is so fascinating because obviously for NHL players, making it is an incredible honor and an incredible achievement, but it can also really be an opportunity. You know, yes, you've already got the achievement by being made to the team, but it can be an opportunity to, really raise your profile around the game of hockey, raise your standing around the game of hockey, and cement your legacy to a certain extent as a big-time hockey player. Totally. Or in your home country, right, to significantly change how many drinks you pay for in the summer. I mean, there's there's an awful lot on the line for a variety of players. And, you know, even think about a guy who we wouldn't expect, you know, to, to be like a guy who's missing out, but a guy like Arthur Silovs, you know, in the American League for the Canucks, you know, he was probably the front runner to be Latvia's third goaltender at the Olympics. And like, you know, 
whatever, I guess. Well, it's right? easy to kind of giggle at that, but that's an incredible honor. That's to be so selected cool. by your country to go to the Olympics. Uh, it doesn't matter what role you're playing on the team. <laughs> that's incredible. Not to mention the experience. Not to mention the experience. Or, you know, all it takes is like one injury and then one bad start to yep. a game and you're thrown in. And if you play well, maybe you get the next one. Maybe you get your Christers Gudlevskis moment. You know, I mean, no, I'm serious. Like it's not absolutely a Christers Gudlevskis. I, I remember thinking that was the best game I ever saw a goalie play when, when Latvia almost beat Canada, right? Like it's the margins are so fine in single game elimination that, you know, honestly it, it matters a ton. And, and, you know, you look through, or up and down the list of of players, like you know, another example of a guy who maybe, probably not, but maybe might have had a shot would be a guy like Yuho Lamico. Yeah, you know, like a Yuho Lamico. Did he have a chance to be like a fourth line penalty killing center for Finland? He's well thought of in that nation. He was like a point per game plus player when he went over to to play in Liga. Um, you know, he probably doesn't beat out the likes of. E2 uh, Lusterainen or uh, or a guy like um, um, Anton Lindell uh-huh. for that fourth line spot. But, I mean, he's at least in the mix. It's at least a conversation. And so, you know, the Olympics getting canceled, I mean, we think about it or getting postponed. NHL players uh, not being involved in the Olympics, we think about it so often through the context of, like, what Quinn Hughes would have done yeah. or, or what have you. But even, like, well further down the line among Canucks players or prospects – or, or people in the organization and the system, like, you know, guys like Silovs and and um, Yuho Lamico are, like, sort of two of the quieter examples of players that, you know, really do miss out, potentially, on what could have been a really cool professional experience. Yeah, and I even think about, there's those levels, right? There's the absolute star players who we know are locks and we know are expected to produce for their teams. Then, as you said, there's the kind of out-of-nowhere stories and the guys who might even be fringe on their NHL rosters, but they get a chance to live their Olympic dreams. And the other example from years past that I always think of is TJ Oshie in the 2014 Olympics. TJ Oshie, Great NHL player. Had a long, extremely productive career, winning career on a, with a number of organizations. But he was not – because of where hockey is in the United States, he was never going to be a household name. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that's not TJ Oshie's lot in life. But he has that incredible shootout performance against Russia in the Olympics. And all of a sudden, Barack Obama is tweeting congratulations at him. And everyone's like, wow, did you see what TJ Oshie did? And that's an indelible moment in his career – he was never going to get in another platform, right? Well, it, it could only happen at the Olympics. And in the U.S. hockey conscience. Like, that moment meant an awful lot for the game, period. Um, no, for sure. For sure. And, and you know, another guy here is Yaroslav Halak. Like, remember when they put out their three locks, right? And, yeah. uh, and like, Stan Bowman was still the GM of the Chicago Blackhawks, and one of his was Seth Jones, and it's like, <laughs> do you, uh, yikes. Yep. But the uh, um, but the but for the for the checks. Like, or sorry, Slovaks. Slovakia. Yeah. For Slovakia, Halak was one of the three. Like, Halak was one of their big name three that they locked into the Olympic roster, right? And, and I mean, we remember Halak playing here in 2010 uh, for, for the Slovakian team that they didn't win the bronze medal, but they played in the... They did win the bronze medal game, didn't they? In 2010? Yeah. I think they fell short to Finland. Finland, my okay. recollection. Well, Finland yeah, always they were wins in the, the, the safe bet. Finland yeah. always wins the bronze medal. Game. They were in the semifinals. Yeah, they were in the they were in the right, and they well, of course, because there was the Dimitra save, the Luongo yep. save on Dimitra. But the yeah, so they 
Halak has been that national team's like stud goaltender for years. Uh, played for Team Europe too, so you know he was going to be another guy who was going to be not just like there, but he was going to be a starter, like a, a everyday starter for one of the national teams at the Olympics, and and a team that you know Slovakia is one of those teams that can upset people and can make some noise if things line up for them, or if Halak had played really well, and you know especially at his age and at this stage of his career and with the workload that he's not getting for the Canucks, yeah. like that could matter a lot. Like those games, how he plays under pressure, that that might be his only chance to show, Hey, I can still do it in elite level when the, when the chips are down, you know, going into another free agent season at the age of 36, like there's a significant amount lost there for Halak too. And looking kind of farther up the roster at some of the players who were going to have the chance, or at least possibly were going to have the chance to go for the Canucks, if we just kind of think about it in terms of, you know, who is this, who's had, who's missing the biggest opportunity here with the reality setting in that NHL players won't be representing their countries at the Winter Olympics in February. And the two names that jump out to me are both Team USA hopefuls, and they're Thatcher Demko and JT Miller. And, and I'll start with Thatcher Demko because... Look, he's not necessarily a lock for the team because USA has tremendous depth and goaltending starting or he wouldn't be. We're all we're talking hypotheticals here now anyways. But he wouldn't have necessarily been a lock for the team because of USA's depth and goaltending with Gibson, Hellebuck, you know, Campbell making a push. But again, we talk about these moments that can happen at the Olympics. And again, going back to a, a U.S. hockey story, Ryan Miller at the 2010 Olympics totally. cemented his legacy as an incredible international player and something and someone who Hockey fans in the United States will always have strong, positive memories of Ryan Miller because of what he did at that tournament. And as you said, you know, with a guy like Archer Silovs, yeah, you might go into the tournament third on the depth chart, but especially when you're Thatcher Demko, you're going to have your opportunities to climb up that potentially, right? It could always come. Then you get in a single el elimination tournament and... That's when goalies get the chance to build their legends. That's when goalies get the chance to do stunning, exceptional things that help their teams get over the hump and... Patrick Demko's not going to have that opportunity, but it would have been a massive one for him. Yeah, well, and there was a chance that he would have been the backup, not just the third goaltender. Yep. When, when people were sort of writing it down on paper before the year, he was often third, you know, like usually third. Maybe it's Spencer Knight instead of Demko, but that was sort of his uh, tier. And, and I do think he'd moved in, especially with the, the nature of Gibson's injury. And despite the fact that Jack Campbell's been in incredible, maybe the best goaltender in hockey, um, you know, I, I think there was a, a real shot that it would have been Hellebuck Demko as a, as a one, two going into the tournament for the U S and the way that the Olympic tournament is designed, right? It is cruel at the pointy end, but the round Robin gives you almost every shot to make the tournament. Like yeah. no big country is really ever going. If you go one, one and one in the round Robin, you're, you're going to advance and play at, you know, you might have a tough draw, but you're going to play single game elimination. And when hockey. you, and when you look at some of the other teams involved in that round Robin, you're going to go one, one and one. <laughs> totally. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so the whole point, like the tournament is literally designed to be forgiving as teams get their feet wet at the outset and then extraordinarily unforgiving once once you get into the single game elimination um you know the semifinals and and on and on and what that results in similar to something we've seen with team canada over the years right is if you have one goalie who struggles right or struggles in a big game like there's always an opening to make it a really tough decision for the head coach yep. who's got an awful lot riding on one game, right? Like, especially as a goaltender, 
you know, if you have the Marty Brodeur game against the United States, and if you're Roberto Luongo, you have the next game in your lights out, like, that can make you the starter, yep. and then that can make you a legend, right? And like, the, the the margins, again, especially for goalies, so fine at a tournament of this nature. Demko probably wasn't going to be Team USA's day one, game one starter, but he had a shot at getting in the mix and knowing what we know about Demko's unflappability, his ability to raise his game, the ability to be a human force field in the net. Um, I mean, my goodness, like there there really was a huge missed opportunity for him. And as you pointed out, it happened with Brodeur and Luongo at the 2010 games, happened with Team Canada at the 2002 games as well, with Curtis Joseph and Marty Brodeur going yeah. the other way, right? Where Curtis Joseph did not look good against Sweden. The whole team didn't look good against Sweden, Sweden in that game, but Brodeur gets to go in and the rest is history. So that is absolutely something that can happen that has repeatedly happened in these short tournaments where you, you know, we always say, Oh, ride the hot hand in goal. Well, you really have to ride the hot hand in goal in those Olympic tournaments, especially when you're choosing from, you know, it's not as if you're a normal NHL team where there's a, a massive drop off when you're going to your backup. Like you have this incredible wealth of goaltending talent at your disposal. Just mm-hmm. go with the guy who is playing at his best right now. So I think it's a massive missed opportunity for Thatcher Demko and probably really disappointing for him. I I got to interview him on the station just before the season, before training camp opened, and he was very open about that's on my mind. I am absolutely gunning for Team USA. Yeah, I got to take care of you know my day to day business with the Canucks and help the team win, but absolutely that is a target for me. That's a goal coming into this season. And Thatcher Demko, along with the rest of the NHL players, you know, not able to achieve that goal officially now the other guy i mentioned also a team or not quite officially well yes but but officially unofficial yes exactly (laughs) it will it will be official imminently Mm -hmm. if not already that the nhl players won't go to the olympics and the other guy i mentioned that's a team usa hopeful who i think you know getting the chance to go would have been just massive for him is jt miller because if you look at jt miller's points production since he's come to vancouver It's exceptional. It is elite, right? And this is also a guy who's being relied on in all situations, playing a massive minutes load. Now he's shown his flexibility. Now he's playing down the middle with Bruce Boudreaux and doing a great job in a very short sample, but a great job of driving play as a center on his line with Besser and Pearson. And again, you just think of guys who could really raise their profile in that tournament. You know, he's out here on the West Coast. The games are all late at night. It's a Canadian team. They haven't been that great since he's been here. In fact, they were horrible last year. I know they had the bubble run, which caught some attention. But outside of that little span, not a lot of people are tuning in to watch the Vancouver Canucks around the league on a day-to-day basis. So JT Miller, the point production is there, but has he really gotten the recognition around the league that you might expect given what he's been able to put up since he came to the Canucks? And again, you look at the Olympics, if he can do – if he could – replicate any semblance of what he's done for the Canucks on that stage. I think there would have been a lot of people around hockey circles and around the NHL saying, holy cow, we've been sleeping on what a good player JT Miller is. Yeah, well, and JT Miller was going to go. Like, JT Miller was going to make that team for sure. I think the other American-born forwards who have a shot, Brock Besser and Connor Garland, were a little bit more on the bubble. But I think JT Miller was going to go. I think JT Miller was going to have a bottom six center role and I think he had a – I think you're right. I think there was a real chance that he, you know, cemented himself as, if not a household name, then then sort of a cult hero in yeah. American hockey. A, a guy who can kind of do it all but also can do it all at a level of skill that hasn't necessarily been typical of bottom six forwards that play for Team, Team USA, USA in the Olympics. And, and that's the other side of this, right? That Team USA 
was going to have a level of skill that we've just not seen them have really in best on best international play ever. I mean, when was the last time that Team USA went into best on best international play with the second best goal scorer in the sport, yeah. right? In in Austin Matthews trailing really only, um, excuse me, uh, Alex Ovechkin, right? I mean, you, you throw down Adam Fox and and Quinn Hughes and Kyle Connor, Johnny Gaudreau, Larkin. I mean, this Team USA uh, was going to be ridiculous. Uh, Chris Kreider, Jake Gensel. I mean. Truly, this was going to be like Team USA's coming out party in, in a lot of ways. Do you think Zegris is on the team? Probably. Yeah. Is it like a is it like a Trevor Zegris? Is it a Trevor Zegris, Patrick Kane, you know, uh, ex big body Chris Kreider second line? Yeah. And that's not even your top line. I mean, Team USA was going to be ridiculous. And that's with Jack Eichel, you know, up in the air, up status in the air, wise, right. right? Because you have that, and then you're just looking well, at and then you a throw stacked. In- Group. And then you throw in Hellebuck and Demko, and then you throw in Seth Jones and John Carlson and Adam Fox and, and Quinn Hughes, Hughes, you know, on down the list. I mean, uh, do you bring both Kachucks? Do you have a line with both Kachucks? Is that your third line with like Jake Gensel? Because that sounds annoying. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you put him? Do you put him with JT Miller? And just, I mean, I think you absolutely would. And just mute the yeah, ice effects. Um, the, both both <laughs> Kachucks playing with JT Miller in the center would have been just absolutely infuriating, infuriating for uh, other teams. Oh, I know. I'm 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 honestly angry just thinking. Yes, about it. this is what we've been robbed of. <laughs> I know, and and you know what? It's not a small thing to be robbed of. No, <laughs> like that line. That is a third line or a fourth line sounds hilarious but you know we were talking about the opportunity for goalies to move up over the course of the tournament and you say you know you mentioned jt miller okay probably going and starting in a bottom six center role for the american team but that's a guy i look at because he's shown his versatility and his ability to play with really high-end players and get results if you're a game two games into the tournament and austin matthews isn't clicking jt miller's got an opportunity to move up on his wing right if you need if you're looking for a spark in that tournament in your top six he's shown the ability to play that role in the nhl and again i just think you know he would have been such an important versatile piece with the opportunity to gain a bigger role in the tournament and he could he could have made his mark in a big way on that stage is jt miller the least well-remembered member of like team anarchy team north america from the last world cup yeah that's like, an interesting one. Like no one, no one remembers that he was on that team, but he was on that team. Yep, he was on the U twenty four or whatever team North America. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think J T Miller had a t- pretty tremendous opportunity, uh, and obviously with uh, with Garland, you know, the thing is is that he's never really other than at the World Championships, he's never really had a chance to represent ho- like USA hockey yeah. in best on best, including at the U eighteen or the U twenty level because he was sort of slept on. Um, so you know it would have meant a ton to him, and I, I think he did have a real shot based on his production this year. I mean, you know, there there's a ton of really productive American-born forwards, but he's up there, right? Like, he has 22 points in 31 games. That puts him certainly in the top 15 of American-born forwards in, in the sport right now, so... You know, it, he had he had sort of a fringe shot. And then Besser, you know, with the way he's been playing more re- recently. Could have played himself back into it. For one sure. thinks he could have played himself back into it, especially with his intelligence and, and how rare his offensive toolkit is. Um, you know, that there's a, there's a lost opportunity there for those two gentlemen as well. Is there anyone else on the Canucks that kind of stands out to you as, you know, it's a missed opportunity for everyone. We understand that. But that really, oh, man, this could have been something special for that player. Well, yeah. I, I mean, look, Pedersen. And Oliver Ekman Larson were shoe-ins. They were going. 
they were going to represent Team Sweden. Um, that team would have had Markstrom and Nett. They would have had probably the best blue line at the tournament. Um, Pedersen would have been probably the one or the two C. I think that would have been a really cool opportunity. Sometimes, sometimes too, we see guys struggle in the regular season a bit and then absolutely go on fuego in the Olympics and come back and play some of their best hockey. I think about uh, about Dimitra actually in 2010. Like that literally is his season script in Vancouver to a yeah. T. Um, you know, I do think that there was a, a really cool opportunity, especially because of the fact that Sweden always has the best power play at every single one of these tournaments. They were like a decade ahead of NHL teams using only one defenseman on the point, and it was like such an advantage for them in international play for a long time. Now teams are more wise to it, like are sharper about it, but, uh, you know, I think uh, I think Pedersen holding down that sort of right half-wall spot uh, that would have been an awful lot of fun to watch and, and a tremendous opportunity for that young man. And then the last one, and it needs to be said, because I think he had a real shot at being Team Canada's fourth-line center, was Bo Horvat. See, that's interesting. I wanted to ask you about that, because I know... He had I, a real I just, shot. I look at the forward group, and it's so stacked, but I do understand they also look at the role-player element. And they Bo Horvat checks so many boxes when you're thinking of a guy who you can have confidence playing in down your lineup. So you think he would have been legitimately in the mix? Yeah, I think he had a real shot, especially if he'd continued to play uh, a little bit better under Bruce Boudreau. I mean, I I don't think he'd played himself out of a spot by any means. I don't think he'd necessarily put his best foot forward with the way that the team had struggled. But I think considering his leadership, considering the face-off abilities, considering his growing reputation for big game moments, the fact that everything about him... Everything about him signals that he's got the stomach for any fight you find yourself in, right? Um, you know, I, I do think that he had a real shot at being Team Canada's fourth-line center. And, of course, when you're Team Canada's fourth-line center, that means you're playing with, like, two of oh, the best yes. ten players on the planet on your wings and have a real good shot at winning a gold medal or having, like, a clutch goal or a big moment or, you know, being, like, the Mike Richards guy on on a Canadian team. Like, when they scramble the lines, you end up the winger on this energy line that completely flips the tournament for you as the, you know, uh, immortal Mike Richards, Jonathan Taves, Rick Nash line did for Canada in 2010, right? So, I mean, I think Horvat had a shot at being one of those, um, you know, bottom of the lineup and I yes. use scare quotes as I say that because it's team Canada but you know uh, one of the team Canada like hockey Canada classic energy guys who are still 60 point plus yeah. NHL players who end up playing a huge role I think he I think he did have a shot at that and and I've got to imagine that's severely disappointing yeah it must be for him I also feel like team Canada just, just loves taking NHL captains right like they almost love showing off hey look how many captains we have on our team you know what I mean C is for Canada <laughs> yeah that's exactly right we lead in leadership that's us team canada <laughs> but you're right i think he was ultimately going to be in that mix and as we said it's it's tremendously disappointing for every player who was in contention who was going to go around the nhl disappointing for a whole lot of the canucks individually as well we're going to take a quick break here we'll be back lots more discussion about what lies ahead for the vancouver canucks for the rest of this season into 2022 as well that's coming up you're listening to the canucks hour on your home of the canucks sportsnet 650 Welcome back to the Canucks Hour on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. It is Jamie Dodd, Thomas Drantz here for one more segment. My co-host Drantzer, of course, does fantastic work as a Canucks insider covering the team for The Athletic as well. 
Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, there is so much news hitting us all the time in the NHL world. And in the first segment, we tackled how the impending reality that the NHL will not be sending its players to the Olympics in Beijing in February impacts various individuals on the Canucks. Who's missing out on, you know, a really tremendous career opportunity if the players would have gone to the event. The other, of course, massive, massive news that was announced on Monday night by the NHL and the PA is that they are suspending the season early on December 22nd. There will be no more practices or team activity, obviously no games from December 22nd until December 26th. So that means Tuesday is the last time the Canucks can hit the ice until after Christmas. Now, you and I were at Rogers Arena. We saw the Canucks practice on Monday, and we also heard Bruce Boudreaux talk about, you know, getting back on the ice with his team, what that meant, the opportunity afforded to his team as a result of that. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, Boudreaux was very enthusiastic about the chance to really get some good, solid practice time. And Drancer, you know, coaches around the NHL are desperate for more practice time. They always want more practice time. It's always hard to fit it in. If, if there was going to be a silver lining for the Canucks in this COVID outbreak, it was the chance to get more time on the ice with their new coach, learning, teaching, understanding how he wants them to play. So they're not going to get as much of that, right? Might only be two days here. That's all right. It's still an opportunity for Bruce Boudreaux to try to, you know, instill some things into his group. And and I, I started thinking about it. And look, they're, they're 6-0 under Boudreaux. It's great. They're on this winning streak. There have been some very positive signs in terms of their underlying numbers. You know, there's also been some things that haven't necessarily improved as dramatically as the 6-0 record would suggest. But when you look at the underlying process going forward for the Vancouver Canucks. Where do you think are is kind of the low-hanging fruit for things that Bruce Boudreaux can realistically improve about this Canucks team over the remainder of the season? Oh, man, it's it's tough because, you know, I, I feel like with the way that they were playing, with the aggression that they were playing with, the way that they were sort of unlocking their ability to generate on the rush – I feel like they've basically reached their stasis in terms of what's the optimal way for this team to try and win games, right? And I think you need to trade more chances five-on-five, which Boudreaux has done. And I think you need to trade chances more at five-on-five because even if that's not the most sustainable way to win games, like you'd rather pulverize teams, uh, control 55% of scoring chances five-on-five, this team's probably not built to do that, at least not with their blue line. But they can get to 52 or 51% and then trust that they have more finishers more skill up front and better goaltending out out back that you know if they're trading chances they can live with that because hey we've got Demko and we also have uh, you know from the Canucks perspective we also have five or six one-shot scorers that you'd kill for so you know that's sort of the template five on five the the special team side of it I mean they've been better and I don't know that they're going to be able to do much more than that. Like the the PK under, um, oh my goodness, is it Walker? Walker, right? right. Yes, Scott yeah. Walker. Scott Walker. I don't know why that name escaped me. Um, but the penalty kill under Scott Walker has been as good as it can be. I mean, it's been actually incredibly good. Yeah. Maybe unsustainably good considering their personnel. 
Uh, we'll see how long that down ice pressure works to sort of keep teams off the board. Um, you know, I'm I'm a little curious to see how elite power plays begin to tackle it when when they see them. And and that was one thing I was going to be interested in seeing with with Toronto uh, before that game was postponed this past weekend. So, um, you know, we'll we'll sort of see. But if the special teams are a bit better, and if the well if the power Penalty kills a lot better if special teams on the whole are a bit better. And if the five on five game just makes more sense for this personnel, you know, I do think you have a, have a team that should be able to be an 85 to 90 point team on true talent, which is kind of what I think of them as a group, at least as the roster is currently constructed. And for me, that would be proof of concept. Like if they perform to that level under Bruce Boudreaux over the balance of the season and, and factoring in the six games, the six to 12 points he's already put in the bank. To me, that's proof of concept. He's done a great job. Um, you know, he he got this team out of the muck that they were in to open the year. So, yeah. so for me, that's sort of it. I I don't know that there's a ton of other low hanging fruit aside from you know over the long haul. If he's not quite as rigid about playing righties on the right side and lefties on the left side, I do wonder if you could target an additional lefty upgrade or bring up a Jack Rathbone, right? And then play Hughes on the right side, potentially, or at least see what that looks like. Because, you know, we spend so much time thinking about, like, where do the Canucks find that RD, that top pair RD, that stay-at-home RD, who's skilled enough to maintain possession, but can help Hughes in terms of the defensive side. And it's like, what what if Hughes just plays the right side and you've already got that guy in tow in Oliver ekman Larson, And that all of a sudden becomes your top pair. And, and, you know, if $14 million for a top pair is not outrageous, yep. you know, like that becomes something that you can kind of count on, then it becomes an awful lot easier to build a really good second pair, right, and a, and a really good third pair, as opposed to finding, like, the stud first pair RD, like 1A RD guy to play with Hughes. Like, that's an impossible task. But building a second pair, like, hey, that's something you should be able to do in an offseason. Like, yeah. that's, that's attainable. So for me, that's the sort of low-hanging fruit that would resonate not just over the balance of this season, potentially, uh, if they felt felt they had the other personnel on the left side, but but maybe beyond. Well, and I think just in general, for me, that's again low hanging fruit might not be the best way to put it. But if you're just trying to think, okay, where are areas that Bruce Boudreaux can keep improving this team? I'm really curious to just see how much more can he consistently squeeze out of the blue line group, right? Because we're seeing we've seen fantastic results from Tyler Myers. Obviously, we've seen incredible results from Quinn Hughes. You know, I, I don't attribute that to Bruce Boudreaux. I don't expect that to slow down. Quinn Hughes is that kind of player. But we've talked a lot about the deficiencies and the holes on this roster and specifically on defense. And I think to your point, Trancer, if Bruce Boudreaux can come in and figure out different combinations on this blue line that all of a sudden, you know, Tyler Myers doesn't need to sustain the level he's been at over the last four or five games, but if he can settle in, you know, to, okay, slightly below that, but still a guy you feel all right running out there in top four minutes, that's tremendous for the Canucks over the final two seasons of his contract. Like, that's a big, big deal. And to your point about potentially trying Quinn Hughes on the right side, maybe pairing him with OEL, trying that out as your top pairing, you look at what that does for a guy like Jack Rathbone. And we've talked, and a lot of people have talked, that, you know, Rathbone's skill set, it might end up being a little bit redundant for this Canucks team. If all of a sudden a spot opens up in the top four on the left side for Jack Rathbone, well, then he could be a real asset on the ice and not a guy that you're thinking, ah, do we have to shop this guy? Is he? Are we going to have room in the lineup? All of a sudden, he can be potentially, or at least you can give him a shot as your guy on the left side there. Yeah, well, and, I mean, it's easy to forget that 
during the course of this Canucks win streak, right? Oliver Ekman Larson missed some games with injury. Yeah. And their second pair left D was Tucker Pullman. Right? Now, Jack Rathbone was hurt, but I mean there there's definitely going to be opportunity. There's an Jack. opening. There's an opening. And so, you know, it, it's actually pretty amazing. I mean, the headline items of the Bruce Boudreaux so far have been Scott Walker's got the PK not giving up a goal a game. You know, fair enough. Uh, the stars are playing well. It looks like it's fun again, right? The the team is playing high event hockey. Like they've won six games out yeah. of six. Those are the headline items. But the amount of lemonade that he's made from the lemons he's inherited on this Canucks back end over the course of his first two weeks in, on the job is nothing short of incredible. Like incredible. Um, so we'll see if he can uh, he can continue to brew that magic. And and in the event he can't. It'll be curious. I'll be really curious to see what sort of buttons he hits to try and solve things. And the Jack Rathbone one. Now Rathbone's been injured. Um, some hope that he could maybe be back, if not this weekend, then shortly yeah. thereafter. So so potentially by the next time the Canucks are playing games, Rathbone could be an option. Um, it seems like it seems like the club could use that. Like it seems like the club oh, yeah. could use someone with his ability to move. Uh, his skill set, his head for the game, his offensive talent, and he was really snake bit offensively in the first part of the season. Like I think what Jack Rathbone helped the Canucks generate largely went unmined, or like it, it, there wasn't a bottom line there. There was no payoff. There was, there was good no process, payoff. but there was no payoff. Totally, and but that's coming. Like that will yeah. come eventually if you keep putting out good process, you'll get that payoff. Hundred percent. Well, and if you keep generating what the Canucks were generating with him on, so I, I'd be really curious to see what this this team under Boudreaux playing the way they're playing now would look like with Jack Rathbone in the lineup. And and I do hope we get to see that for an extended run of games when hockey resumes. Yeah. That might be one of the things I'm most excited to see, yeah, me too. you know, when hockey resumes for this team, because the, the potential is obvious there for Jack Rathbone and were there warts in his defensive game? Yeah, absolutely. But what, what brute with the ma- mantra from Bruce Boudreaux has kind of been here. It's, it's all about putting players in the best position for them to succeed. Right. And, and it's about accommodating the skill set of your players to get the most out of them. Now, sometimes it can be hard to do that for every single player up and down the roster, right? They might have different skill sets. It, it can be hard to, to make that work for everyone at the same time. But I do just wonder, as you said, play the Canucks now playing a style that's more about trading chances that allows the D to be more aggressive, more offensive minded. It seems to play right into the skill set of Jack Rathbone. And I think there was so much, you know, when we came into this season, right, the the two rookies that everyone was excited about, Vasily Podkolzin and Jack Rathbone. Podkolzin is paying that off in a big way. He's been fantastic. And we might get a chance to talk about him a little bit uh, in a few minutes. But you know, Jack Rathbone, there was the snippets of it, and then we haven't seen it because he's been down in Abbotsford. But it just feels like under Bruce Boudreaux, he's going to have a chance to thrive if he gets back up, if and when he gets back up. Well, and, and also the the message of, you know, don't play scared. If you make a mistake, just come back and, and earn it back on the next shift. Yeah. Right? That's sort of a hallmark of uh, Boudreaux's player-centric style, right? And that would seem also to suit a guy like Jack Rathbone a little bit better than where the Canucks were, where they were playing tight. They're playing right? scared. They're playing, they senses, were playing tight. Right? Like they were yeah. playing to avoid a repeat of what we saw in January and February this year, right? Totally. They were getting torched by teams and everything was about, okay, we don't want that to happen again. And it just took so many other things off the table. And you yep. hope in this environment now, Jack Rathbone, there were a lot of good signs. Don't get me wrong when he was up to start the season, but he might get even more, of an opportunity to show what he can do, show how he can help this team 
going forward. And look, if we're just looking at, you know, other kind of obvious areas of improvement, the one that still jumps out to me, and I know he's been better, but it's still Elias Pettersson for me, right? To, to find that next gear where we know he can go, where, where, we, where he's, you know, consistently as great, as impactful as we've all seen him be in the past. And we've seen snippets of it. We've seen moments of it, but we, I don't think we've quite seen it game to game, shift to shift from Elias Pettersson. There's, there's been some really positive signs. You know, I didn't think he had his best game against the Sharks and that, you know, the sixth uh, win of the six game win streak. But as a lot of people pointed out, you know, he was, he took 16 faceoffs and won 11 of them. That's not something we've seen from Elias Pettersson. And I do wonder, you know, you've mentioned this a lot, Drancer, how, how driven he is and how much he takes not reaching his standards personally. And I wonder if making progress in the face-off circle is the kind of thing that just mentally is going to help boost his confidence back up, right? Where he can see those kind of tangible impact, tangible results of the work he's put in on the face-off circle. And maybe that's a platform for him to keep raising his game for the rest of the year. Yeah, and I mean, he's just got to find that platform. Whatever it is, whatever it is that jukes him into it, whether it's now that he's helping out on the PK, whether it's winning draws, whatever it is that gets him back to competing the way he needs to right which is and and not to say that he hasn't been trying to compete that way it's just that I don't think he's been hitting that same maniacal level that he had in those first two seasons and I, and I especially in 1920 because that's the season that I watched him every day and and really thought like oh man there's a core of steel here yeah and that and that swagger right like that dominant type of energy from him is, is sort of what's lacking for me far more than, you know, shot rate or, I mean, whatever you want to look at, right? Velocity or how, how comfortable he looks out there, whatever. Like, I, what I want to see is those alpha moments from a guy who I've seen it from in the past on, on a regular basis. And, you know, whatever it is that gets him back there, whatever whatever challenge he's put in front of him that once he's surmounted, it's back. Like, whatever it is, unlocking that is basically everything for this team. And and not just, again, this season, but with a long tail of oh, man. for years to come. Yeah, it, it's we've talked about it, but it completely changes the trajectory of your franchise depending on what level Elias Pettersson kind of settles at for the bulk of his prime career in the NHL. As you talk about the kind of engagement from him, I do think we've seen way more of that under Bruce Boudreaux, right? We have seen more of the skating, more of the physical engagement that is typical of Elias Pettersson. And it's such a cliche. But have sports. we seen it sustained? I think it's it's been a lot closer to sustained. Like, we saw it in flashes here or there, and it would be like, oh, one shift in a game under Travis Green, and we all kind of said, oh, is Elias Pettersson back? I think we're seeing repeated shifts of it. Is it, a, is it enough? Is it at the absolute top level where you can get to? No, but I think it's clearly trending upwards under Bruce Boudreaux. And, and what I was going to say, it's such a cliche in sports, right? Oh, if you're not scoring, find other ways to help the team, right? You, you hear it in basketball. You hear it in hockey, certainly. Do other things to help the team, and that'll help you get your offensive production back. I do think there's a level of truth to that. And with Elias Pedersen, I think it maybe can be his face-offs, to your point. Hopefully, it's also that increased and consistent physical engagement. And when that starts to click, as you say, totally consistently, I, I, I just I, I still see so much offensive talent there. I got to think it's only a matter of time before that comes back. All the skill in the world, and, and you'll – you'll find few people that believe in Pedersen more than I do. Right. Yeah. Um, for, 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 all, for all that anyone wants to say, I'm negative, right? The, the one guy I know can be special in this league is, is Pedersen. And he's sustained it for so long that I, that I have to give precedence to it over what we've seen this season. And, and, you know, I'm not sure we've had it back. Like I'm not as sure that it's been back since 
uh, Boudreaux took over as as some, but I, I do think it's clearly a process for him right now. He's still working through it, and I you know I just think when it's back, it'll be like it, it's one of those things that you know it when you see it. You know what I mean? Yep. And, and we're all looking for those signs that it's back. Oh, yeah. But if you have to ask yourself, like, maybe that's something that can bring him back, or maybe that's it, or maybe that was the shift where where we saw it again. Like, if you have to ask yourself, then that's not it. Because when it is when when it is what we're it. talking about, when it is it, when Pedersen hits that level, you'll know. Yeah. It, you know, it was the Forsberg goal and the shootout, right? Okay, well, are we going to see it? And totally. He scores the goal in the doorstep. Or the hit on Ian Cole in, yep. the, in the Hurricanes game, right? I mean... You know, the one thing I will say that I, I have noticed more is just the the one thing, like, it's the least sexy thing in the game. But one thing that Pedersen does really well is he's just super disciplined about going to the net. He's just super disciplined about going to the net. He lives in hard areas despite his size, and he competes like crazy. Like, that, that was what people around the hockey world kept talking to me about when I was in the bubble. Was you know this guy like this guy's just paying the price in front of the net? He's like a buck seventy five. Like what's going on? Like this is this is awesome. And one thing I will say is as I have noticed the last couple weeks, um, you know that part of his game has been back. You saw it against Carolina with the sort of grimy goal. Was yeah. it Carolina? Yeah, I Columbus. Believe so. Columbus. Where, Sorry, it was where Columbus. Garland set him up for the goal. Yeah, yeah, the that was Columbus. Yeah. Um, that Columbus goal, like that for me. That unsexy Pedersen goal because he's just being disciplined about being in the right spot and willing to pay the price to be there. That that was a sign for me that like what I'm looking for that sort of intangible competitive nature thing that we're kind of trying to put our finger on. Like that to me was a really good sign. But again, it's one of those things like when it's back, we'll know. Yeah, he'll he'll break somebody's ankles and then It'll pick feel, the top corner and then he'll do it again the next shift or something like that. There will be like an that. undeniable electricity, right? There will be this. You'll just know. You'll just know. Yeah. And and I do think we're going to get it. I do think we're going to see it. And I think when we see it, it'll be very cool. <laughs> it'll, it'll be very like thou shall not pass Gandalf moment in the Minds of Moria. <laughs> like we'll just be like, oh, yeah, awesome. But uh, but I don't know that I've seen it yet. Uh, the other guy, just quickly, we have a few more minutes here. But the other guy who I'm so curious to see what the rest of their season looks like because, man, it, it – it has the potential to change the conversation around the future of this team, I think, in a big way. Is JT Miller and specifically JT Miller playing center? Because we've heard Bruce Boudreau talk about how much he loves having Miller, Horvat, and Pedersen down the middle and what an incredible luxury that is when you look around the NHL. And he's not wrong. That is an incredible luxury for this Canucks team to build around. There's been so much talk of, do they have to trade JT Miller, right? Do they Because of his contract, because of his age, do you have to move him for help on the blue line? Do you have to move him for future assets? Is that something that's going to be, you know, on Jim Rutherford's to-do list when we get closer to the deadline? I get all of those conversations, but at the same time, if he just keeps producing and keeps playing like this down the middle, man, those conversations become a lot more complicated for me. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they were always, always complicated, right? And yep. it's like, it's like... People lump Horvat and Miller, for example, into this conversation together. And at the end of the day, you also have to be conscious of the fact that no team gets better trading really good people. You know, like you do have to be conscious of how hard it is to find really good people, really competitive people who produce at that level, uh, no matter what you're trying to accomplish over the long haul. So, you know, I, I think those were always going to be extraordinarily complicated conversations for whomever was in charge. Um, but there are also conversations like those, they need to happen and they need to happen now and they need to happen in a front office that's not yet fully staffed. And that's, you know, it, it is a little bit dicey, but, but there's not a ton of urgency. You've got some time you to figure time, this yeah. out. Yeah. 
And especially as the Canucks are winning, right? Like, especially with the team on a 6-0 and run, uh, you know, I still think they're pretty far out of the playoff picture. I don't think you can be counting on them getting back into the race as, as something that you'd wait into that decision. But I do think that, you know, it does provide Rutherford and his incoming staff some time to wait, give this team 15 more games, right? You've got until March 21st. It's a late trade deadline this year. You've got a lot of time to wait and assess and see where you're at. And at some point, too, I mean, neither player is eligible to sign an extension until the 13th of July. But, you know, at some point, too, begin those informal conversations and take the temperature and and factor that in, too. Because, you know, on the one hand, you do have some time and you have time well beyond the trade deadline. But but you also have to be cognizant of the fact that the value for guys like that might be highest, you know, over the next few months. And, And as this team looks for what's next... You know, it is important that you have a a sense of that, even if ultimately your decision, and it might not be the wrong one, in fact, it's probably the right one, is to hold on. It's a great point, though, you make about how difficult it is to get better by trading really good players, right? Like, you should never, I I understand there's this sense of, oh, if this this guy doesn't fit into our long-term plans five years from now and he has value in the trade market, trade him. Trade him, get future assets to build around. But at a certain point, you do need to collect talent, right? You do need to have really good players on your team. And, you know, as I said, the way JT Miller is playing right now, the fact that he's doing it as a center, that is not a player that you trade lightly. You have to think long and hard and be extremely sure that you're getting fantastic value if you're going to go down that road. Well, or fa- And fantastic value that helps you quick, Yeah. right? I mean, the the Seth Jones deal to me is, is part of the template for that, right? It's like it's not enough to just get really, really good futures, but, you know, you get Sillinger in the lineup and Bockvist in the lineup immediately, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, we got help now and for the future, right? Like those are the types of deals you need to be looking at, not deals that are purely future-oriented, but deals that also provide a route back to being a you know meaningful team within the next couple of years, uh, certainly before Pedersen and Hughes both turn 25. And so that's sort of the expedited timeline, and that also has to be weighted in any of those decisions. That is going to do it for us here on the Canucks Hour. We will be back tomorrow live at 11 a.m. to continue breaking down your Vancouver Canucks. You're listening to the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.